You're listening to Race Capital on WRIR 97.3 LP, Richmond Independent Radio. We open the show with words from community organizer Omari Al-Qaddafi from his speech in 2018 at the March for Marcus David Peters. joining us and that wasn't here at the beginning or if you need a reminder just going to remind you why we're here today it's not by coincidence that we are gathered here today in the birthplace of american brutality richmond virginia the story of marcus david peters began long before his arrival to this earth long before his final bus were taken at vcu medical center where atrocities were committed against black adults and children's bodies and cast down a well to be forgotten. His story began long before May 14th when his blood ran into the interstate I-95 pavement, a highway intentionally built in a way to destroy black communities and drive millions into perpetual poverty. His story began long before his employment at the Jefferson Hotel, an establishment named for a man alleged to stand for freedom and liberty, but who affirmed the Constitution that denied that to men and women of color. His story began long before he committed to try to help children being served by a public school system that enslaves more black children than any other state in this country. We are not here by coincidence, people. We are here to affirm the dignity of Marcus David Peters' life, the value of his life, the importance of his life. We are here to say to this country, to this state, to this city, to this police department, that we must end the murder and dehumanization of black and brown people. We demand justice for Marcus David Peters. Not tomorrow, not next week, not next year, today. We demand justice and reparation, This is Race Capital with me, Naomi Isaac, where we interrogate racial narratives in our space, place, and time of so-called Richmond, Virginia the former capital of the Confederacy. This episode is dedicated to Marcus David Peters and all other black lives that have been lost in the struggle for black liberation. Over the past few weeks, we have watched in horror as the Richmond Police Department, accompanied by the Henrico Police Department, the Chesterfield County Police Department, the Virginia State Police, the National Guard, and VCUPD, descended upon and terrorized innocent anti-police brutality demonstrators. On the list of those attacked include our children and our elders. And for what? Why did our mayor and governor declare war on their own citizens? 
hall in defense of three relics to white supremacy, Lee, Jackson, and Davis. All in defense of property and corporate leaders like Walmart and Target. The time has come to defund the Richmond police and abolish the entire racist prison industrial complex of which they serve. On the stolen land of the Powhatan nation, fertilized by the blood, sweat, and subjugation of our African ancestors, we not talking about nothing less. We want justice, and we won't be pacified by another one of Stoney's empty promises. We won't march hand in hand with the same pigs that assault us with their war weapons. We won't have trust in another diversity training or ineffective accountability measure. We want justice that looks like abolition. And if you're not with the movement, you better get behind us or get the f*** out our way. Our ancestors' wildest dreams didn't look like kneeling with LeVar. They would have ran his ass out of town, a rage of fury trailing behind them. Police will shoot us in our sleep, in the supposed comfort of our own homes, and then turn around and ask us to protest peacefully. Not even slaves would march soundlessly into the hole of their own graves. What I'm talking about is revolution. This is a black liberation movement in every single sense. And in the city of so-called Richmond, the former capital of the Confederacy, that is intimidating to the power structure. The Virginia elite cannot survive without oppression. We know that well enough in the state that brings the best for business and the worst for workers. Capitalism drives the descendants of musty confederates like Lee, Davis, and Jackson. Every black body in sight is just a resource to be drained or a neck to be hung. We want complete freedom from all monuments to slavery, including modernized slave patrols like the Richmond Police Department, jails, immigrant detention centers, and prisons. This is not no reformist Disarm, defund, dismantle. That is the motto. We talking transformation. We will not be appeased. All these apologies from our goofy elected leadership fall on lost ears. The time for begging is over. There will be no reconciliation. We are calling for the complete defunding of the RPD and a long overdue investment in the quality of black lives. We want money for public schools, not school resource officers. We want money for safe housing, compassionate institutions dedicated to rehabilitation and care. There are real and tangible solutions to poverty, education, and mental health, but they do not start with the clasp of a handcuff and end with the shutter of the prison door. In the pursuit of justice for George Floyd, the state of Minnesota filed a civil rights suit against the officers involved in his murder. The Minneapolis School Board unanimously agreed to divest from the MPD, with the Minneapolis City Council voting to completely disband the department this past week. In the defense of George Floyd, protesters redistributed life-sustaining resources from corporate looters like Target, publicly shamed their mayor, and burned down Minneapolis 3rd Police Precinct. This is not just a message to LaVar Stoney, but to the complacent bodies sitting on our city council, marching with us through our neighborhoods, but failing to support us with policies that prove Black Lives Matter. This is a message to our neighbors and siblings who are hesitant to accept the challenge of liberation. The time for calmly marching to the beat of our own genocide has passed.
we demand justice. And not only do we demand it, but we believe we are entitled to it. Everything the city owns can be contributed to black sacrifice. My ancestors' wildest dreams don't look like reformation. They look like completely uprooting the system. This week on Race Capital, we recenter the narrative. We take some time to learn about the criminalization of social movements with anti-racist ally and scholar Dr. Nicholas Copeland, assistant professor of sociology at Virginia Tech. Lastly, we speak with founder and co-host of Race Capital, Chelsea Hicks-Wise, on the importance of sharing Black stories. This is Race Capital. We have to go to the root. We have to go to the cause. Dealing with the condition itself is not enough. And it is because of our effort toward getting straight to the root that people oftentimes think we are dealing in hate. We are oppressed. We are exploited. We are downtrodden. We are denied not only civil rights, but even human rights. So the only way we're going to get some of this oppression and exploitation away from us or aside from us is come together against the common enemy. Tell him how you feel. Tell him how what kind of hell you've been catching and let him know that if he's not ready to clean his house up, if he's not ready, to clean his house up. He shouldn't have a house. It should catch on fire and burn down. Okay, great. Um, so my name is Nick Copeland. I'm an anthropologist. I work at Virginia Tech. My pronouns are he and him. Uh, I am a professor of uh, American Indian Studies or Indigenous Studies in the Department of Sociology at Tech. You can find me online pretty easily uh, through my work. I've written a book about Walmart with my partner, uh, Christine. It's called The World of Walmart, Discounting the American Dream. It talks about social movements related to Walmart and a lot of politics related to Walmart. And my most recent book is called The Democracy Development Machine. And it's about uh, the flaws of neoliberal democracy in Guatemala, where I've done extensive field work. And most of my research is in Guatemala. And so I'm working with organizations there. So that book is actually free to download um, online. If you look up the Democracy Development Machine in my last name, Copeland, then you can just download a free PDF uh, of the book. I'm really interested in the criminalization of social activists and environmental activists in uh, Central America, Latin America, Guatemala in particular, and how they have responded to that. And of course, the criminalization of social protest is a global phenomenon, and it also has its histories, right? It has histories that are, that are very local in a lot of ways, but are also very interconnected. And so I'm trying to, I'm interested in the ways that a lot of the tactics and methods that are developed in one place get used and recycled and, and, and reverberate in other places and, and how these kind of processes are, are connected around the world and similar and how they evolve in relationship to different strategies that social movements have. And so this is something that I've been, that I think about, that I teach about. And this is a really important time to be thinking about these questions as social movements are developing their strategies and they're thinking about how to respond to 
efforts to co-opt them, efforts to to divide them internally, to you know misrepresent them, to defame them, and ultimately, how many people that are in the streets right now have been arrested, and how many are just blanket framed as criminals? And so these are things that these are things I'm interested in for sure. Yeah, so I know this is definitely on your mind. It's on a lot of our minds right now when it comes to, as you talked about, uh, strategizing um, and using tactics and the co-optment of movements. Can you talk to us a little bit about how our present time parallels or correlates to other social movements that you've studied or other social movements that have occurred in the United States or the global South over the past 60 years? Really, the, the, the civil rights movement is directly connected to Black Lives Matter. You have the civil rights movement that made really major gains, but also never fully was able to turn the demands of that movement into concrete legislation the way that a lot of people would have wanted it to have been. And especially the demands of black power movements, which were demanding um, really social democracy and the expansion of social programs and kind of more radicalization of democracy in the United States. Those there were efforts and moves in those directions. There were things like the Voting Rights Act, but those ultimately wound up being very limited. And what we've seen since the 1970s are decades and decades of the deliberate and concerted unraveling of the gains of the civil rights movement, most profoundly with uh, mass incarceration that advanced on a largely bipartisan basis from the 19, you know, starting in the 1980s with the war on drugs and then through the 1990s. And then, you know, the war on social programs, the dismantling of uh, the welfare state, the dismantling of any kinds of social protections, and the the increasing uh, politics of austerity, the rise of inequality in the United States, the decrease of unionized jobs, like all of these things have created the conditions for, you know, you have a a large underclass that is primarily uh, people of color, that is um, that is more and more criminalized. And that's basically how we deal with economic inequality is that we racialize and we, and we criminalize that. So we treat all poverty as if it's non-white. Um, and we also want to take more punitive measures to that because as a society, the, the ruling consensus and largely bipartisan has been to dismantle, you know, to let Wall Street be in charge of the economic world that we live in to let them call the shots and to dismantle any kind of efforts at social democracy. And you see, you know, movements that this result has resulted to in the militarization of policing. Now, the processes in the United States in the 1960s with the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement, that paralleled movements around the world that were happening in the 19th, starting a lot beforehand, actually, in many cases, for decolonization. I mean, there's been resistance to colonization since it began, but you have kind of more effective and successful decolonization movements happening. You have India becoming decolonized in 1947. You have uh, many African countries that are entering into very, and these aren't just like asking to be decolonized. These are wars for national liberation. And we have to understand that this is all in the context of the Cold War, right? The Cold War where a lot of these decolonizing movements were looking for support and they were looking for legitimacy. And they, they did not find that in the United States in most cases. The United States um, very famously supported uh, the French to maintain control of their colony in Vietnam, right? And, you know, in, in Indochina. And 
we supported the French colonialists there to, to maintain that. We were trying to maintain this kind of colonial world order. And ultimately, we were afraid of, you know, losing control, um, having um, communist countries gain footholds, having the Soviet Union gain footholds throughout these. And ultimately, this is what happened. A lot of these national liberation movements, because they were not supported uh, by European countries, by the United States, these became Marxist national liberation movements. Latin America had formally undergone decolonization in the, you know, the, you know, between 18, you know, 10 and 1880, depending on their various histories, but they re remained really internal colonies. And so even throughout Latin America, where they're not formally colonized um, as much, although there were still examples of that, they're engaging in these nationalist anti-imperialists because the United States had an imperial influence over much of, you know, Central America and and so you have a lot of um, moves for national liberation. They were looking for social programs. They were looking for redistribution of wealth in their countries. They were looking for basically a fair shot to participate and to share the wealth of their countries and not have the wealth of their countries extracted by, you know, northern countries um, who had big industries that were going to be basically making the money off of their natural resources. This was the dynamic, you know, of colonialism and decolonization throughout the world. So... What's happening now, you have to look at it in terms of the dismantling, ultimately, of the gains of the civil rights movement and the effective criminalization of black power movements that happened, you know, after the civil rights movement that have more radical demands, that those movements were crushed, dismantled, ultimately repressed through violence in the United States. And then you have to look globally at decolonization and countries that wanted national independence that they became bogged down in these, they had to fight these really serious wars in order to get their independence. They finally start to get their independence in the, you know, through the 50s and the 60s, um, but they wind up being very poor countries. And you still have a globe that if you look at the inequality between North and South, that is a legacy of colonization. That's a legacy of colonialism. And that's why these kinds of discussions about, you know, you know, just yesterday, one of the most exciting things that happened was they, they knocked over, uh, they, they, they toppled over the statue of Colson, right? And this is a guy, you know, he was a, one of the major perpetrators of the British slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade. So it's a beautiful thing. These go back to deep struggles against colonization. I mean, they're struggles against the entire world order that we, most of the time, we take it for granted. Oh, there's a bunch of rich countries and a bunch of poor countries. In the United States in particular, People don't really know much about why that is. They don't think about it. They think, oh, the United States is just some great special country, right? We don't, and Europe is just, and, and I think it often comes down to people think, oh, well, whiteness, like they're white Europeans are obviously, they're more sophisticated. And of course they came out on top of history, like some sort of social Darwinist understanding of the world that kind of is our kind of unspoken common sense, which was very much, the explicit common sense for colonization that European white people had the, they had more sophistication, their civilization was superior. Um, Non-white people in the global South weren't fully human beings. They did not have the capacity to govern themselves. It was their destiny and it was right for them to be ruled over by colonizers or colonizing countries. And colonizers thought of themselves as doing everybody a favor. What was really happening is that they're taking the wealth and resources, they're plundering these countries. Right, the development of European and you know, capitalism and industrialism came from sacking the material wealth out of Latin America, out of Africa. And so these places were 
de-developed or underdeveloped or undermined. And you have mass poverty as a result of this. But then we look at mass poverty today and we never think about this history. We rarely do. And so this is a real opportunity for us to kind of expand our frame and think about what, what does it mean to dismantle white supremacy? Because frankly, the entire world order is organized around centuries of white supremacy. Can we just back up a little bit and talk more about the militarization of the police? Can you conceptualize that for folks? What does that mean when we say that the police are militarized? There's a really interesting book, and it's not my book, but it's a really great new book, and it's called Badges um, Without Borders by uh, Stuart Schrader. This book is tracing the history of policing and, you know, in, in the 1960s and the 1970s in relationship to this history of decolonization, the United States is increasingly concerned about losing influence over these, um, mil- like, over these populations, over these countries. And so, I mean, I'm not going to do as good of justice to, to the thesis of this book, but, but the United States starts working with policing to turn them into kind of more militarized forces that are working to do counterinsurgency work. There's also a lot of the United States working directly with militaries, especially in Latin America, to train them to do counterinsurgency work, to fight off communism and to fight off popular movements. And I can tell you a lot about that um, in the case of Guatemala and other countries as well in Latin America. But there's this process whereby we're basically creating a police force abroad to maintain U.S. hegemony and U.S. influence and U.S. basically to defend the interests of U.S. corporations that are operating in different countries around the world. And those police forces that were trained in those ways in counterinsurgency and, you know, as occupying forces um, to defend capital and property against people and to use a variety of techniques to, you know, in many cases, non-lethal techniques as well, right? to maintain control in a country where they did not have a lot of legitimacy, you start to see in the riots of the 1960s in the United States, a lot of those processes that we have been working on abroad, they start coming back home, right? They start coming back to the United States. And so to think about policing in the United States, you can't just look about what's happening here. You have to look at the global context of managing counterinsurgency and managing, managing decolonization um, through the Cold War. And so that's where you start to see a lot of, and that's, you know, one thing that Stuart talks about is like, hey, you know, um, a lot of the black power um, activists in the 1960s and 70s were saying the police are looking at us like an occupying force, right? They're like doing counterinsurgency there. And they didn't necessarily have the evidence for that, but this book has demonstrated, in fact, they were being trained in those ways. That's a deeper history of the militarization of police. And then you have the more recent history of the militarization of the police in the 1980s and 90s um, through the war on drugs, where you have tons of money and what what are tanks doing on these streets? I mean, what is this going on? You know, what kind of weaponry are we talking about the police having? You have the police that have so much armor. They are riot squads, you know, at a time where we can't even get PPE out to people who are medical professionals who need it. The police are so well outfitted, right? And they're at war. Right. And I think a lot of them are seeing themselves at war and at risk and they're, you know, maintaining they're maintaining order in places that have been completely excluded from economic, social development, you know, by design to a large extent. Let's talk about tactic on the police side. 
right now there's a lot of discussion about surveillance and folks are really nervous again that the government is labeling different protesters and demonstrators as an occupying terrorist force. We we heard Trump saying he's going to label folks who are speaking out as Antifa and others. Can you right. give us the history of Pro and surveillance when it comes to civil rights movements? Right. I mean, you have uh, you have a long history of the FBI, um, and of course, you have all these liberals today who are big fans of the FBI. And they're, you know, they want the FBI to be respected and they talk about how great of work they do. And they've been using this, of course, to fight against Trump. But if you look at the history of the FBI, the FBI really started out, it was one of the major repressors of communism in the United States. So it was a big part of rounding up and infiltrating communist groups. They were also infiltrating labor organizing. They were trying to break up more radical uh, labor rights groups they were using the communist label also as a way to criminalize all these groups that were basically doing things that the First Amendment protects, right? The right to speak, the right to think and um, communicate with other people, and also the right to assemble, which I think is something that's really interesting. The, we think of the First Amendment, we almost never talk about the freedom of assembly, right? Which is about protest, which is about direct action. Everybody talks about it in terms of just speaking and saying whatever you want to. But the power, I think more powerful is this freedom of assembly. And so what you see is people in the night, you know, marginalized groups, um, you know, you have, you know, labor groups that they start to get repressed. They get repressed really strongly underneath the, uh, the Cold War. And in fact, by the time the Cold War was going, labor movements in the United States were very explicitly anti-communist because they, they were so, you know, they didn't want to be involved in that anymore and it really wound up weakening um, these kind of more leftist, more radical labor rights organizations. So these could have been or should have been legal political parties, right? But they were not, or legal political movements, but they were not allowed to exist, right? They were criminalized and they were hounded out of society. And then you have uh, the civil rights movements and you have the uh, black power movements and you have the, um, the American Indian movement. Um, these movements, their leaders, so these movements were infiltrated they were defamed in the press. They were infiltrated by, um, by uh, FBI operants who were giving intelligence to the FBI about those organizations. Uh, this specifically was a big part of the assassination of Fred Hampton, who was a you know, major organizer for uh, the Black Panthers in, in Chicago, and who was organizing truces between different competing gangs and with building, they were building organizational capacity. They had a newspaper that, um, you know, tens of thousands of people were reading. The Black Panthers had a message that was getting out to society. And what happens is, is that, you know, people in the FBI are like, no, this is an illegitimate. They just decide that this is not legitimate. It's a threat to the social order. And so they start to, they tap their phones. They start to put out information to try to divide these groups. Like, oh, here's some information that we're going to, it's like kind of like, I guess we'd call it today like catfishing because they didn't have that technology at the time, but they'd be like, they'd slip some letter to one group saying that the other faction was making fun of them in some way to try to create divisions. Or they would do a thing called bad jacketing where they would basically start a rumor that certain leaders were actually working for the FBI. And of course people get freaked out and there start to be internal divisions. People got killed about this. Stokely Carmichael was bad jacketed. They said he was working for the FBI, and ultimately this led to a major rift in you know, the, the Black Power movement. So 
And I'm not like a you know expert on this history per se, but I know the general outlines of it, and that these efforts to defame, divide, infiltrate, neutralize. Of course, you have the right wing political establishment and politicians. Basically, they want to say Black Lives Matter. That's a terrorist organization. They know they can't do that, and so what they want to do is say, well, this little part of it, the Antifa and looters, right? Those are things that are adjacent to this movement, they just kind of want to paint it all with the same brush and just say that like, okay, well, they're legitimate, they're good protesters, and then they're bad protesters. But that line is a, is a, is a trap, right? Because then who gets to decide who's on what side of the line, right? That means that there's a whole group of people that need to be repressed. Ultimately, these categories, if you create categories of people that need to be repressed and that are terrorists, those categories expand and they include the entire group. So, and I think that's by design, right? And now you have Tom Cotton and the President of the United States calling for like the use of military force against these protests. How many people are going to get killed, right? They'll be, they're talking about massacres. They're also talking about killing people that are just legitimately exercising self-defense, right? Like stand your ground, you know, like conservatives and gun advocates really like stand your ground, but not when it's social movements that are defending themselves against you know, right-wing attacks. They don't believe in stand your ground anymore. Migrant justice advocates and community organizers have long established the connection between defunding and dismantling the police and defunding and dismantling ICE and CBP. Can you explain the necessity of connecting these two struggles? ICE is a, is a subset of um, Homeland Security. And of course, this Homeland Security is new um, since the war on terror. But you have this little policing element that they have jurisdiction over everything that's 100 miles from um, the shoreline. Think about that. That's a chunk. That's a huge chunk of the United States population. They are incredibly loyal to this particular president. They, are, they resist oversight. They're running a giant um, prison system, right? They're running um, an immigrant detention system, which increasingly looks like uh, concentration camps. And we, so we're having a debate in our society recently about whether or not it's okay to call these um, immigrant detention centers concentration camps. Uh, okay, that's a really horrible place for a society to be where you have COVID outbreaks happening among immigrants, you have um, immigrants that aren't getting enough food. You have all sorts of reports about sexual assault in these um, situations. And ultimately, you know, the criminalization of this entire group is a way for, you know, is a, is a strong effort to prevent there from emerging solidarity between migrants and other kinds of working people. And I think that that is, you know, we need solidarity across borders for working class people and for people that are just trying to make a living that don't make the policies that we live under, that don't control the conditions under which they're driven out of their own countries too. So I see that, I see a very natural connection between Black Lives Matter and the criticism of policing and um, the criticism of mass incarceration and the rise of one of the most unaccountable police forces in the United States that is increasingly using Gestapo-like tactics in order to terrorize, frankly, tens of millions of people, but not just them because it extends beyond them because that allows their presence as this policing force that's not accountable to just operate, 
right? And they're going to increase and increase their purview. And this is a threat to social movements. It's a threat to democracy. It's a, you know, obviously it's a stain of morality because of the tactics that they're engaging in, splitting up families, splitting up children from their parents. Um, they're stealing children from their families and putting them into adoption. These are ultimately crimes against humanity that they're committing and they're doing with U.S. tax dollars. And it's, you know, like they have no reason to exist. They don't make anybody safer. They're causing danger, right? You're listening to WRIR LP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. And this is Race Capital with me, Naomi Isaac. Chelsea Hayes-Wise. I'm a mom. I'm a community organizer that works with two radical, amazing film voices on race capital, as well as organize with Marijuana Justice, uh, where we fight for equitable marijuana here in the state of Virginia. I know when I was first listening to Race Capital, I was really drawn to the way that you were exploring the narrative of the racial structure of the Coliseum Project. I know a lot of us were drawn to Race Capital because of Navy Hill, but that's actually not the origin. Um, That actually wasn't what drew you to this work. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the foundation of why you were drawn to start your own Black media outlet? Sure. So in 2000. 17, I was introduced to radio through the station, WRAR, and I was on with Women in Politics. And then in 2018 is when Marcus David Peters was murdered by the police. And I saw the media, I read the newspapers, and nobody was telling the narrative that had to be told. And I was also writing for a local publication at that time that was not Black-run and Black-owned. And as supportive as they were to me, I felt like I was always having to explain my writing and my voice. And radio was something I didn't have to do it that way. And I could invite other people to do it that way. And Marcus David Peters and, and his story really inspired me to make sure that we amplify certain voices. And, you know, growing up, I was a cheerleader. It's just kind of in my blood. And for me, the best thing I feel like I could do for my community is give them a platform to speak. And that is how we find justice in press. I look across the Commonwealth and I look for Black political media voices. And who do we follow? Who, who talks about Black politics in Virginia? And I couldn't find anybody that I I could listen to. And that's what I wanted and that's what I needed. And I realized too that our community needed more voices. So many people asked me, well, Chelsea, you're a social worker. What does this have to do with anything? And for me, I understand that our oral histories, our oral data, our statements, our witnesses, our testimonies, are never seen or heard as actual facts or truths. And 
as a social worker advocating for people to give them their own space to tell their truth unquestioned in fact supported with data and history that the data that white supremacists and the white power structure validate right numbers and, and graphs and stuff that are things that we should not only rely on to tell us the truth but we've been conditioned that way and for me starting our own media system is also our way to cement our stories in history because i remind people all the time that history are only media stories that stood the, the test of time and that's what we're doing with race capital is, is shaping new history with the press and our press can you walk us through the Marcus David Peters story and what you uncovered through following that story, especially as someone going into this, you know, for the first time without the support of all the, you know, resources that the power structures have to tell their narratives. Yeah, good question. So after he was murdered by the police, I heard the police chief have a press conference. And for me, if there wasn't outrage, then there was no justice. And so I immediately went to the radio station and I talked to some friends and they supported me and said, look, the show I was doing called Women in Politics just couldn't hold the story. And I need a new space just for black voices, just for people to speak about African ancestry that is rooted right here in Richmond. And how could we miss the connection between Richmond roots and what happened to Marcus David Peters? I was like, if we don't start making this connection right now, then we're gonna continue to miss this for another 400 years. And so I immediately reached out to people that had been doing this work, right? Marcus's story is what got many of us involved, but the work of Richmond Transparency Accountability Project had been happening prior to this. They had already been asking for a civilian review board. And so I immediately went to them and asked them to come and be on the show and talk about the data and how the data from the people were, was not listened to by LeVar Stoney after they knocked on doors and heard the voices of the people say, our biggest issue in Richmond is public safety and by public safety we mean we want to be safe from the police but that that voice was not enough for LeVar Stone it was not enough for the police chief back then and so they said go and get data and we were like well where do we get this data they said well you got to get it from the police so the only place that is validated for data is stored reported and written in the lens of a white supremacist institution called policing this is a common tactic of uh, power structures, right? They make you go do the research and you go find the solutions as if we didn't elect them and put them in place to do all these things. Right, that's exactly how politics works. People don't understand that these politicians don't normally know anything about the bills. It's the advocates that come in, have done all of the research and say, this is what we want. And the legislator, whoever it is on whatever level says, okay, and does that. And that's why it's so important about who is in the room creating that language and who gets there first and who comes with money and resources and people and media and advertising, because that's who the politicians listens, listens to. You mentioned uh, Richmond Transparency Accountability Project. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to us about the work they've done, especially in, especially the role they played in uncovering pieces of the Marcus David Peters story and holding the Richmond Police Department accountable to their violence? Because Richmond Transparency and Accountability Project had already been doing the work um, and they were supported by 
particularly Dr. Eli Costin over at VCU, we were able to uncover that uh, the Richmond Police Department was not being transparent about the data that they were putting on their website. They are supposed to be reporting um, use of force, field interviews, grievances, and things like that on the website. Well, we would go on the website and we wouldn't find uh, the information that were up there. We also would notice that grievances that were filed weren't being answered or closed for over a year sometimes. So people would file complaints against officers and they would just never hear back. After Marcus David Peters, we had actually just started to show up at every community meeting Mayor LaVar Stoney had, much like the, the protesters are doing now, just not going away. This was exactly the tactic that RTAP used and, and su was supporting justice and reformation in Princess Blanding to show up and let her voice be told and confront Le Mayor LaVar Stoney. In fact, one day at one of those community meetings, we were looking, it was in June, I believe, or July, and he was shot in May, and we were looking at the May statistics on the website, and under the use of force, they did not have Marcus's injury there. And we asked them why, and what we noticed before is they, somebody had said, too, that if it's part of protocol and it's um, official use, then sometimes people don't report it that way. So it's, if it's an approved tactic, to be used, and sometimes it's not even qualified as use of force, excessive force. Well, this particular um, piece of data was not in the May report. We immediately called them out in the meeting and the chief came over and said, no, 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 I know it's in there because I looked today, we, we made sure today. And they made sure that day because they knew we would be showing up in the meeting that night, right? So it, it, this is not transparency. This is them trying to cover their asses. So, no, so they were able to uncover that in the meeting um, they were able to also later on uh, publicly shame LeVar Stoney into giving us the data because LeVar Stoney was trying to charge over $4,000 for the same data that he said we had to have in order to get good legislation. So when we were FOIA'd, which is Freedom of Information Act, you're supposed to be able to get this public files. Well, they said in order to print that off and all the staff, it's going to cost you four grand for justice. We had to publicly shame him. We got it for less money than that. And when we got the data, it was so funny. Um, you know, from what I hear, Richmond Police just put it on a CD-ROM and it was, it was almost like to the point where they slid it underneath our door. I mean, it wasn't that ridiculous, but that's how the, the data finally was transferred. Um, and we, with the help, they were able to look up that data and create a report last July that I encourage everyone to go on the website and read. But the community had a fit the, the bill for this research in order for them to be better oh, yeah. at their job? Oh, oh, right. So transparency ain't free. And when you FOIA things, the Freedom of Information Act, sometimes they, they'll, they'll say, well, we, that'll charge staff time. So we're going to charge you. Well, that's printing. So we're going to charge you. And I mean, yeah, that's how it is. Um, and for all press, they do. That is part of the process. So there's been a lot of discussion about a civilian review board or a civilian oversight board, and RTAP has been a big advocate um, of this addition to our justice system here in Richmond. Can you explain for folks who might not understand the importance of a CRB, what it is that they do, and why it's so important that we get one here in Richmond? All right, so the civilian review board, or CRB, um, is an oversight board of civilians so that we're not depending on the police to police the police, <laughs> um, which seems ridiculous, right? 
um, an independent civilian review board with subpoena power to receive and to investigate claims of police abuse. Basically, we just don't want them to have to police themselves. In an ideal world, we would love to have them elected, the people that would serve on this board. Um, we're trying to see what that would look like legally and with the type of state oversight or state legislation we would need. But the importance about a CRV is that it has teeth. And many of the ones that we've seen across Virginia, wink, wink, if you know where they are in Virginia, they do not have teeth. When you're, when you're looking for models, they're not here in Virginia yet. Um, and we are working right now very hard to craft something that will stick and it will need uh, state support as well at a state level, not just locally. And I will say also, too, that many um, initially last week, you know, right now things are changing day by day. And last week when we um, first started to really get following and support for the Civilian Review Board, the chief of police um, decided to advertise in their listserv and on the Nextdoor app for civilians to come and get on their boards. So they were inviting civilians to be on their internal review boards and people were getting really confused on that. In fact, on that Monday that they were at the reconciliation statue, the chief of police who the mayor chose to close out the ceremony talking about policing with the chief of police, by the way. Well, and the chief of police decided to brag that they had thousands of people that had reached out wanting to be on the civilian board with their police. So this is them being tricky with language and trying to trick the public up that you aren't paying attention, that you aren't listening. And finally, because people are listening, we force LeVar Stoney to say out loud, no, we will create a brand new board, not put civilians yes. on the police board, but they will put and create a brand new civilian review board. So things are changing literally in just weeks, in just days, I mean. Yeah, literally, it's like we've lived a whole lifetime in hours <laughs> right now. Um, things are accelerating rapidly. Talk about Rapid. rapid response. You hear youth, Black folks, veteran uh, community organizers calling to defund the Richmond Police Department. This episode is kind of an intro to that concept. So answer this question for our listeners. Defund the police, invest in what? Communities. Invest in schools. I believe in divesting from police and investing in counselors. Why not have a one-for-one one replacement of cop to counselors? Why not have a one-to-one -one replacement of cop for health professionals? I mean, there are so many things that need our money and the way that politicians threaten us with policy and justice is to say, well, we'll have to raise your taxes to pay for that. Well, actually we do not have to we can defund and disinvest in the harmful systems and move that money to systems of care. And so that's the harm to care model that I really wanna push when we're talking about defund and disinvest and invest um, model. I, I believe it's important for people to know their place in space and what needs to be invested in, right? Um, and to have done that work and understand that historic work of maybe not who's the loudest, but um, where that money has to go to provide for communities that, that can survive. So here in Richmond, if we don't talk about schools when we're talking about defunding, then I don't know what we're doing. If we don't talk about housing when we're talking about defunding and shelter, then I don't know what we're doing. If we're not talking about equitable transit when we're talking about defunding in Richmond, I don't know what we're doing. 
not be able to stay home, brother. You will not be able to plug in, turn on, and cop out. You will not be able to lose yourself on Skag and skip out for beer during commercials because the revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by Xerox in four parts without commercial interruptions. The revolution will not show you pictures of Nixon blowing a bugle and leading a charge by John Mitchell, General Abrams, and Spiro Agnew to eat hog moths confiscated from a Harlem sanctuary. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be brought to you by the Shaper of War Theater and will not star Natalie Woods and Steve McQueen or Bullwinkle and Julia. The revolution will not give your mouth sex appeal. The revolution will not get rid of the nub. The revolution will not make you look five pounds thinner because the revolution will not be televised, brother. There will be no pictures of you and Willie Mae pushing that shopping cart down the block on the dead run or trying to slide that color TV into a stolen ambulance. NBC will not be able to predict the winner at 8.32 on the court from 29 districts. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of pigs shooting down brothers on the instant replay. There will be no pictures of Whitney Young being run out of Harlem on the rail with a brand new process. There will be no slow motion or still lights of Roy Wilkins strolling through Watts in a red, black, and green liberation jumpsuit that he has been saving for just the proper occasion. Acres, Beverly Hillbillies, and Hooterville Junction will no longer be so damn relevant, and women will not care if Dick finally got down with Jane on Search for Tomorrow, because black people will be in the street looking for a brighter day. The revolution will not be televised. There will be no highlights on the 11 o'clock news and no pictures of Harry Arm, women liberationists, and Jackie Onassis blowing her nose. The theme song will not be written by Jim Webb or Francis Scott Key, nor sung by Glenn Campbell, Tom Jones, Johnny Cash, Engelbert Humperdinck, or The Rare Earth. The revolution will not be televised. The revolution will not be right back after a message about a white tornado, white lightning, or white people. You will not have to worry about a dove in your bedroom, the tiger in your tank, or the giant in your toilet bowl. The revolution will not go better with coke. The revolution will not fight germs that may cause bad breath. The revolution will put you in the driver's seat. The revolution will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised, will not be televised. The revolution will be no rerun, brothers. The revolution will be live.
burning. They burned it. It's on fire. It's on fire. It's on fire right now on top of the American flag. The American flag is laying on top of it. It's on fire. Hey! Oh, they're dragging it. They're dragging to the water. Someday or another, every monument to white supremacy in this city will come crashing down. I'm your host, Naomi Isaac, and that's all for this week on Race Capital.